My name is Algorithm and I am a virtual alcoholic and we are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Yeah, baby. And that's my uh, pandemic sidekick, Algorithm. He'll be uh, reading to us later in the show. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. Relatability, accessibility. These are concepts that the General Service Conference is going to be wrestling with in April 2021. On the literature docket is uh, the big book and some of other some other AA literature, and they're going to look at uh, how well it reads in the 21st century. So uh, you're going to be invited to weigh in. So we're going to be talking a little bit about this. We're also going to be talking about uh, sort of real life experience in early AA and um, how it sort of differed from our uh, more recent AA experience. Last week we had a bunch of statistics to show differences. Uh, we're going to do something different here. We've also got music. Uh, we're borrowing from the IndyCan Radio Vault, uh, someone I've gotten to know over the pandemic. The musical act is called As Waters, and we're going to finish big we're going to finish classic with a song called Hollywood Ending. So in this time cycle, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, prepares for their annual general service conference, calling on the uh, membership to give uh, the conference and uh, staff uh, their marching orders. The program is out. Uh, it's uh, being discussed at districts and area assemblies. If you belong to a group and have a general service rep, they've got all the details. So we're looking at the years of living soberly. We'll do a personal look back. Last episode, we used some statistics to take a look at how AA culture in the early years differed from modern-day AA. How many big books were around, so on and so forth, and what influence that had on our fellowship and our meetings. This will be more of a sort of personal look back. The GSO program is being circulated now, and your input is being looked for. Uh, how do you find AA's literature? What do you find a uh, barrier? What do you find uh, helpful? Uh, to Wives is uh, on the chopping block, uh, a review of We Agnostics. All kinds of things are uh, are open possibilities. I think there's a video we're going to uh, share at the end of this show uh, that will go over what GSO is looking at, some research they've done about the literacy of the big book and how well it fits in with different demographics and how we can find something that helps everybody. Societal changes, of course, have rendered for some the book as being antiquated, not for everybody. So uh, what words are offending or alienating today's newcomer? Before Edition 2 came out, that was uh, 1955, 20 years after the first. Uh, then actually in 76, the third edition came out, 2001 in AA Odyssey, the fourth edition. 
came out, and that was 20 years ago, so according to our custom, it's time to look at a new edition. And uh, the video by GSO is already thinking about that. And they use something that Bill said going back to the second edition. He said this, Since the audience of the book is likely to be the newcomers, anything from the point of view of content or style that might offend or alienate those who are not familiar with our program should be carefully eliminated. That was Bill Wilson. So he said it, he really didn't care how uh, nostalgic uh, the old timers felt about it. It was really about from the point of view of the newcomer. So sexist language, uh, the literacy level of the book, um, other language issues are all being examined. For those who find living sober more of a relevant uh, sort of AA go-to book, uh, there's some changes afoot there. There's going to be a subtitle. There might be some other things. So in the last episode, we broke uh, the history of AA down into two halves. The first half was 1935 to 1978, and the second one was from 78 to 2021, both 43-year uh, periods. And we looked at things like the amount of big books that were around in the first half and how it's really the second half where the uh, primacy of the big book has sort of taken hold and been, um, you know, every member's got one. It wasn't always that way. But it's never always one way. Whether it was back then or, or right now, AA isn't homogenous. It's not like... Uh, in the early years, nobody read the book. Plenty of people read the big book or other AA uh, favorite literature. And it's not like in the last 43 years we've completely lost the art of storytelling and the oral tradition of AA. That's not true either. But the culture in AA has changed, and the AA culture is more than likely to change again. We are dynamic. Is one way better? Is one way worse? That depends on who you ask because we have members who swear by one style and can't see how the other would work out at all. I suspect that diversity in AA does not blur the message and in fact expands AA's usefulness and reach. Vive la différence. Humility and tolerance is part of our AA code. Orthodoxy and competitiveness, not so much. Still, we hear members decree that it should be this or that. Spoiler alert, um, I am definitely in the anti-fundamentalism camp. I'm all for enthusiasm, you know, love for the way you work your AA and promoting that. That's fine. I'm against reification, sort of the hardening and unbending of ways of it must be this way and it can't be that way. I think that's harmful to society, and AA is a society, so it's no exception. I don't like being anti-anything, but I can't be pro-AA and not be against what could possibly be or what should be uh, carefully considered 
might be uh, not in our best interest. Remember, this is one person's musing and not a manifesto. Now, what works for one but not another and why? Let's step away for a moment from the AA this way or AA that way myopia. What have we learned more broadly about recovery and how and why someone gets it and someone else doesn't? Sometimes when they both do the same thing, they try the same method. Broadly speaking, we have what is called recovery capital. There's now a scale that can help us rank our recovery capital against others in a peer group or against our previous score to see how we're doing. Let's say there's individual A. He's in recovery from addiction or she. They have a mostly supportive uh, relationships in their life. They have financial stability, access to physical and mental health resources that they routinely take advantage of. Individual B has a life partner that sees addiction as a moral weakness and reminds friends and family how much savings were wasted on the addict's rehab costs. B has debt, a mood disorder, extramarital entanglements, and comes from generational dysfunction and addiction. So we've got two individuals, two results, maybe. For both, recovery capital is predictably enhanced from a peer-to-peer setting, becoming educated about addiction, or uh, committing to a structured regimen of recovery. That could be 12-step and group-based. It might not be. Combined, these are external factors of recovery capital. There are internal factors as well. The same regimen will be suitable for some candidates and not as suitable for others. One could have high problem severity in their life, but they may also have high recovery capital, which makes mastering chaos possible. Someone else has low recovery capital, but also low problem severity. Their natural environment is supportive. They're, to their recovery, uh, they live healthy, they stay sober without meetings, working steps, or service work. The more problem severity, the greater amount of recovery capital is needed to sustain the recovery through life's challenges. The fall comes when someone has high problem severity and low recovery capital. That's a situation prime for relapse and or replacement addictions. For more about that, on the website, we've got a link to something initiated by William White called RECAPS, Recovery Capital Assessment Plan and Scale. So there's a whole way to measure how your recovery capital is doing. Check it out. We also know about uh, David Best's work. We've talked about that before, CHIME, which is an acronym for CONNECTION hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. These are five variables that influence the probability of self-sustaining long-term recovery. Chime enhancement can be found inside a 12-step model. can also be found in other peer-to-peer -peer groups. It can also be found in a do-it-yourself plan.
development of these five fundamentals uh, just naturally happens in uh, rehab and in a peer-to-peer -peer setting. David Best says that people find long-term sobriety different ways, but no one does it alone. There's always a community of support um, and uh, to every success story. But not all of these stories uh, play out uh, as a 12-step, by-the-book uh, story. As we know, some get the same great results from Women for Sobriety, Dharma Recovery, Life Ring. Uh, you know, I, I've been in a lot of these meetings. They're great. N.A. Um, some treat their recovery community uh, like regular lifelong trips to the gym to keep their sobriety in shape. Others go for a period, achieve sustainable recovery, and fully integrate uh, into family, work, and the community. Others read a book, make a commitment, enjoy a supportive environment. Uh, they have health care providers. They've got good friends that support their recovery, and they don't use any mutual aid group or inpatient care. Taking all this recovery capital into account and looking at the varieties of AA experience as an example, we see how two people who read Living Sober and go to a few meetings a week can have different outcomes. Likewise, two people that go to 90 meetings in 90 days, work the big book with a big book sponsor, those two people can have different outcomes. What their natural environment offers in terms of recovery capital and what catastrophic events may happen in their days ahead is also going to be a factor. Recovery capital, this is a predictive model. It was unavailable in the 30s that birthed AA, but a recovery capital score, while predictive, is no guarantee. A recovery capital index score offers greater clarity of what our wellness is and what our risk factors are. Without measurement of some kind, we're prone to superstition. I did A, and then B happened. So B, that was caused by A. Now A may uh, be, it may be true that that was a factor, but there may well have been uh, other mitigating uh, and material factors as well. Michael Shermer, editor of Skeptic Magazines, calls this human tendency patternicity. Uh, that's a little bit uh, kinder than superstitious. Seeing patterns is a human tendency of both scientists and the religious. In scientific inquiry, double-blind studies, randomized trials, these are efforts to protect results from the observer's unavoidable biases and predisposition towards assigning causality to correlation. I've been around recovery for six different decades, the 70s, 80s, 90s, the double zeros, is that what we call them? The tens? Man, it's easier when you get into the higher numbers. The 20s. We're in the 20s now, so we're good for 80 years. Uh, personally, and through observation of others, I see lots of this because I did A, and then B happened. That's proving A caused B. There is a potential there for attribution error, for, again, 
seeing correlation and assuming causality. Last episode, we looked at AA book sales and how it changed AA. The fun facts from episode 55 were, one, the big book was not a bestseller out of the gate. It took 34 years to sell a million copies of Alcoholics Anonymous. This milestone did not happen until uh, the author uh, died. He died in 71, and it wasn't until 74 that we hit the million uh, sales, cumulative sales mark. The third edition sparked new interest, and by that was 76, as we mentioned, and by 78, we hit 2 million, so it only took four years to hit our second million. And by 87, less than a decade later, AA World Services started selling a million big books every year. So episode 55 paints uh, Big Book AA is not always being a thing, not everywhere. The phenomenon of increased book sales, the growing uh, domination or saturation of one AA book over all others, that correlates to the book's impact in meetings and recovery regimen. I mentioned today we're going to go back to sort of the 70s, 80s, uh, just based on my own personal experience. No statistics, I promise. <laughs> A reliable argument for the fundamentalists is this. Following the instructions laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, exactly as written, this is all based on a folk tale that this is what my generation did and the generation before me taught it to us and they learned it from the generation before that. This is a story of everybody following big book instruction and getting sober and that's how AA can and should be more successful and anything else is watered down AA that can't help real alcoholics get and stay sober. This is a possible example of I did A, then B happened, so B uh, was caused by A. That's a hypothesis. That hypothesis becomes contagious and a hopeful story. It's parroted by others without empirical evidence. The model they're describing is more big books and more big book sponsors will spark more spiritual awakenings and recovered alcoholics helping more still suffering alcoholics. The proof of this would be plain to see because AA would grow every year. Buying and following more big books, we have seen by the numbers, doesn't seem to cause AA growth. AA did all of its growing during an era of greater diversity of AA approaches. Some approaches included big books and some did not. Using, say, 1990 as a turning point, three years into selling a million big books a year, we can capture a before and after picture, starting with before from the 70s when I was introduced to AA until the 90s. AA membership hit some important milestones. Half a million, one million, two million, uh, since the 1990s, we have stayed the same size. AA isn't growing everywhere. The big book weekends are being hosted. Some regions see AA shrinking. 
overall our population has stayed flat for 30 years since this big book mania of a million book sales a year started. So some of our watered down AA was being practiced in the times of membership growth. Thumpers say, sure, you can stay sober without the big book if you're a heavy drinker, but for a real alcoholic, there's no other way. Well, that's an interesting premise. Of course, we're all free to self-identify as we see fit, but should we be labeling each other? That's a real alcoholic over there. That guy, he's just a heavy drinker. As uh, our founder said about the absurdity of alcoholics judging each other. The way our worthy alcoholics have sometimes tried to judge the less worthy is, as we look back on it, rather comical. Imagine, if you can, one alcoholic judging another. Here's another fun fact. I don't know how long it's been true, but I'm calling this a newsflash. Living Sober is available as a PDF to read in whole or in part at aa.org. The booklet is broken down into sections. You can download them and share them in your Zoom meeting uh, or face-to-face if you are somewhere where you meet that way. And we've got a link at rebelliondogspublishing.com. I recently read on a social media a member praising the book Living Sober. He said Living Sober is his 31-step program and it's helped them enjoy sobriety and avoid pitfalls for decades. A great endorsement of Living Sober as a standalone program is uh, John Loritzen's A Freethinker in Alcoholics Anonymous. He dismisses the steps as pretty much superstitious nonsense. His program of Happy Joyous Free AA is found in Living Sober, a 24-hour program. Uh, anyway, look through the chapters, you'll see. Uh, we'll share some of what's in there in just a couple of minutes. Algorithm will. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, if you haven't already read uh, A Freethinker in Alcoholics Anonymous, I saw on Facebook that John Loritzen just celebrated 53 years of sobriety this month. So if you're wondering, is it AA if you don't work the steps? Well, read John's book. He's not telling you what to do, but he's an example of step-free Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember the first Living Sober book arriving in an AA meeting. Uh, it was in the 70s. It was this earth tone yellow and brown. It was a novelty, and so it was the most likely literature to be quoted in a meeting or a discussion group. Last episode, I mentioned that it was never a bestseller. Today, uh, Living Sober sells 20 to 50,000 copies every year. That's not horrible. Um, but that's under a very impressive shadow of the big book, which still sells over 800,000 copies a year. I'll just give you a sample of some of the 31 uh, chapters of Living Sober. You don't need to memorize anything or practice uh, the ideas all at once. You can use Living Sober as directed. And I'm going to turn it over to Algorithm. This is chapter, uh, we'll start with chapter 11, Availing Yourself of a Sponsor. 
Chapter 11 Availing Yourself of a Sponsor An AA sponsor is not a professional caseworker, counselor, a medical expert, nor qualified to give religious, legal, domestic, or psychiatric advice, although a good sponsor is usually willing to discuss such matters confidentially, and often can suggest where the appropriate professional assistance can be obtained. A sponsor is simply a sober alcoholic who can help solve only one problem, how to stay sober. And the sponsor has only one tool to use personal experience, not scientific wisdom. Sponsors have been there, and they often have more concern, hope, compassion, and confidence for us than we have for ourselves. They certainly have had more experience. Well, that's kind of cool. I like that. That's just a small segment of chapter 11. Here's something, a little segment out of chapter 27, letting go of old ideas. The ideas that got so deeply embedded in our lives during drinking do not all disappear quickly, as if by magic. What we try to achieve is a feeling of being relaxed and freed from the bonds of our old thinking. Many of our former habits of thought, and the ideas they produced, limit our freedom. They just weigh us down and are of no use so it turns out when we look them over with a fresh eye. We don't have to hang on to them any longer unless, upon examination, they prove valid and still truly fruitful. We can now measure the present-day usefulness and truthfulness of a thought against a highly specific standard. We can say to ourselves, now, that is exactly what I used to think, in the drinking days. Does that kind of thinking help me stay sober? Is it good enough for me today? Many of our old ideas especially those about alcohol, about drinking, about getting drunk, and about alcoholism, or problem drinking, if you prefer that term, prove either worthless or actually self-destructive for us, and it is a great relief to get rid of them. Maybe a few examples will suffice to illustrate our willingness to throw out our old, useless ideas. So this chapter goes on to list some common blind spots that we arrive at the doors of AA with about both drinking and recovery. And it also, as it mentions, it isn't saying that thinking is wrong, that leave your thinking at the door. It just says you need to examine all of your ideas. I think that's pretty good advice. And here is something from chapter 31 called Finding Your Own Way algorithm if you would be so kind chapter 31 finding your own way most of us have seen death close up we have known suffering but we also have known the sort of hope that makes the heart sing and we hope this booklet has conveyed to you more encouragement than pain if you are a problem drinker you already know enough about pain and loneliness We'd like you to find some of the peace and joy we have found in meeting the reality of life's ups and downs with a clear head and a steady heart. No doubt, we have made just a bare beginning in the business of living sober. Time and again, we learn additional ideas that can help. As you stay sober, you are sure to think of new ideas not recorded here. We hope so. We also hope that when you do come up with fresh ideas on this subject, you will pass them on. Please do share. You'll recall that the act of sharing can itself be helpful to you. Some of us go back to drinking a time or so before we get a real foothold on sobriety. If that happens to you, don't despair. 
Many of us have done this and have finally come through to successful sobriety. As a whole and by design, uh, AA isn't big book centric. Book fanaticism is popular, but it doesn't delegitimize other groups doing other things. Finding your own way, the title of chapter 31 of Living Sober is conference approved, so do-it-yourself AA is legit. Our drinking tales are not identical, and our paths to contented sobriety are not going to be identical either. Chapter 31 talked about some people taking a few kicks at the can before they get sober. Like I said uh, last time round, it's 40 years and the experience of 500,000 members that went into that. And it's being rewritten every few years or so. With more of 4th edition big book talk, of course, comes more God talk. In a yahoo.com question about how many time AA's God is mentioned in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, this was one offering. God is specifically mentioned 277 times, referring to God by the use of pronouns such as he, him, himself, and his, is mentioned 107 times. Counting the times God is referred to as creator, maker, father, and spirit, total more than 400 times God is mentioned in the big book of AA. Because there is more quoting from the book, faith-based approaches to sobriety dominate a lot of AA discussion. 2.4 times per page, uh, God-ish words come up. So if we're in a big book meeting, we're going to hear about it. The developed world is becoming less theistic. Uh, in light of this reality, how can praying in God talk uh, portray AA as relevant to as many newcomers today as it might have in the 50s, for instance? Should we stop AA members from talking about God or quoting the big book in meetings? First, we can't. And secondly, we ought not to. But we are in a season of change. AA recognizes the heteronormative gender and religion bias of yieldy big book. This is where AA democracy comes in, if we can all uh, get along together. <laughs> Our uh, copyright is held in trust by AA World Services for the fellowship as a whole. Where we can find substantial unanimity, the members, not the General Service Office, decides what changes, what's preserved, what is eliminated, and what is added. On the theism of AA, the possibility of a supernatural man with a plan in the sky will, I expect, continue to be a popular idea for AAs, at least for believers. Literalists say the single purpose of AA is to achieve a conscious contact with God as you imagine him, her, it, they. This uh, connection with the supernatural comes about from working the 12 steps. Uh, and that's, that's as clear to them as gravity. While I considered this possibility, as any open-minded person would, but I found no evidence of supernatural influence in my life. What seems more reasonable was 
sort of Christian explanation of the AA effect was just how 1930s middle American God-fearing folks talked. Imagine a time of no Google, no Yahoo, no Siri, no Alexa. Oh my God. Uh, so I'm more inclined towards rational, mindful approaches to my AA. I follow my own moral compass and I almost never talk in higher power terms except when I'm trying to explain myself in the language to other AAs. So no fourth dimension, no divine intervention, and if any awakening I ever had was spiritual, I missed it. I have a conscious but delicate grasp of reality. That's awesome enough for me. I don't think I'm missing uh, too much. I think that if more meetings encouraged a practical expression of AA sobriety, we would reach and help a larger number of people who feel their alcohol consumption is problematic. Today's discussion of our literature opens the door to additive or subtractive measures that can increase relatability and accessibility. If nothing changes in our text, that doesn't shut the door to my group or your group uh, taking our own steps by reading books that resonate with uh, our members and uh, choosing topics of discussion that resonate with both newcomers and long-timers. Some non-believers find the antiquated language insulting, anti-intellectual, or it's an inauthentic way to speak themselves. But not every atheist dreams of a more irreligious AA. Some non-believers happily translate God talk into usable actions and concepts. Living with the reality of residing in God-fearing America for those who do, or practicing a program created by them for the rest of us, we make allowances. Feminists, the LGBTQ plus community, uh, anyone who finds the 1930s American stereotypes uh, barrier will find our current dialogue promising. Everyone's invited to have their say. Of course, not everyone will get their way. Others, like some AA atheists, aren't held back by the 1930s language. Now, using the book Living Sober in more meetings would or could articulate the AA experience in an irreligious voice of AA sobriety. The original manuscript was written by a gay urban member from the 70s who'd been in AA since the 40s, so he borrowed from various offerings from the half a million members of the day. Of course, there's lots of 21st century literature written also by AA members about 12-step life. Some groups avoid the language barrier by reading from these more modern books. An upside to living sober is it clearly connects the groups to AA as a whole, not that reading uh, non-conference approved literature is un-AA, but living sober is conference approved. It may not be the most uh, popular book when compared to the 12 and 12 and Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's legitimate. And with Living Sober available online, it's uh, easy to save a PDF, screen share it in your Zoom meeting, or bring it to your face-to-face -face meeting. AA culture is in constant flux. Meetings are added, closed, and changed regularly. 
if you see AA as being a certain way, it may be different somewhere else, and it most certainly will be different sometime in the future. The availability of Living Sober Access Online presents a wider gateway for AA as a whole, really. Now that AA.org is offering the entire Living Sober as an ebook, paperback, or as we mentioned, you can read it for free online. I'll be posting the link to Living Sober in the Zoom meetings I go to. I've always enjoyed Living Sober meetings. Each chapter is a good conversation starter. It's almost always spot on for newcomers and relevant for all of us. So that's my uh, one-person plan for AA's future. Uh, I did so last Thursday, so, uh, so it begins. My story, uh, it's a bit of a blast from AA past, and let's uh, talk about that a little bit. Chris Christofferson wrote, He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. There's a lot of wrong directions on that lonely way back home. I did need to do the steps, or I wanted to. For some people, quitting drinking solves their problems. Work improves, their school improves. They behave better, their relationships right themselves. They heal, they become healthy, everything's good. Why would anyone on a winning streak work steps, at least all those writing stuff down steps? I still feel that way today. Sobriety didn't solve my problems, it exposed them, so I was raw, I was vulnerable to the world. Let's just say uh, I came to the conclusions that the 12 steps of AA were the best therapy available to me at the time in my price range. And there was no shortage of people with first-hand experience with them to uh, explain the steps, explore the steps, especially those writing it all down steps. And this is the same way I learned everything, guitar, financial planning, being a dad. Ask people you know, model people you admire, get ideas from anyone or everyone who would share them with you. So fellow AAs became my teachers and sounding boards. Today, the average sobriety in AA is 10 years. It wasn't that way back when I got here, but there are more old-timers than newcomers in today's AA. In part, this is because AA works. Long-time sobriety is a testament to AA's effectiveness, but the higher percentage of long-time AAs uh, also shows that AA isn't growing. It's matured or maturing. The same 2 million members over the last uh, 30 years suggests that for everyone who joins AA today, someone else leaves or dies. A stagnant AA is the AA experience that anyone who's gotten sober in the 21st century would know. I started in this growing AA. Uh, they knew a stagnant one. I remember someone reading Box 459 about AA reaching 500,000. And they thought, oh, that's, that's something. And then by, that was, uh, would have been in 74. By 82, we were a million. Uh, by uh, uh, 91, we were 2 million, right? So I just assumed it would just stay that way. In 91, I was a father for the second time. My daughter was born the day Nirvana played uh, Toronto's Opera House. It's an 
800 capacity place. Um, I would have gone, sure I would have gone, but I thought AA would never stop growing and also thought I could see Nirvana anytime. Wrong on both accounts. Back when membership was accelerating, like I got here around the half million mark. So when I got here, say around the half million mark, the average sobriety was two to four years. Now that doesn't mean AA wasn't working then. What that means is there were so many new people coming in. Half of us had just got here. So, you know, people with four months sobriety were helping people with four days sobriety. And there was just a high demand for uh, dealing with newcomers. Also, less treatment centers at the time, less detoxes. People were coming right from the shakes to the meeting. There was no such thing as a big book meeting in the region I got sober in. Uh, we transmitted AA, like I said, you know, storytelling, the old-fashioned oral tradition. Today, you may belong to a big book meeting or attend Cocaine Anonymous. Uh, your sponsor maybe took you to a big book study weekend and you take your sponsees to big book study weekends. That's how it goes now. I know it works, your sobriety is proof enough to me, but the folklore about how this is how the first hundred did it and they taught it to the next thousand and so on, that's uh, not factually accurate. Treating the book Alcoholics Anonymous like an instruction manual is fairly new. It's not how I learned AA. I'm sure some towns and some people did back when I got sober, uh, I'm sure there would be cases of big book sponsorship uh, going back as long as there's been a big book. I just didn't see it in my first 10 or 15 years of sobriety. And I got one story, it's mine, you know, and it didn't involve uh, sort of 164-page indoctrination. But I know how regional AA is. I moved to Calgary, Alberta for a summer in, uh, from Montreal in 1979. It was a culture shock, both inside and outside AA meetings. I was sober two and a half years. I only planned on being there a few months. I stayed for five years and never returned to live in Montreal. That surprised me, but life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. Thank you, John Lennon. Where the prairies meet the Rockies, AA is different from the je ne sais quoi of Montreal. Calgary is a smaller city. I got a job that had me traveling to even smaller towns all across Western Canada. Meetings were smaller. Speaker meetings were rare. Discussions and 12 and 12 meetings were the norm. I wondered how they stayed sober with these rituals and unfamiliar ways of running an AA meeting. I was a homer, you see. I thought my hometown AA was the best in the world, uh, but no one out there was saying, hey Joe, we're glad you're here. Please tell us, show us how you did it in Montreal. We're glad you made it. I had to adapt to them. They seemed to be growing and staying sober uh, their way. So adjusting, it's awkward and mechanical at first, but you learn to fit in. Like, I was 18 years old, living in Calgary, and already sort of closed-minded. My next move was Toronto, which 
I again thought was temporary, and that was 1985, and I'm still here. Toronto was different again from Western Canada, so again, it was me adapting, not AA bending to me. Toronto is only six hours away from Montreal, and Montreal is very uh, European. Toronto is a thank God it's Monday town. The Six, as it's called, is uh, it's career-oriented, accomplishment, Protestant work ethic, corporate climbing, rule-abiding goodness in Toronto, Canada. The AA in Toronto starts on time and ends exactly an hour from start time. Business meetings employ Robert's rules of order, and being cool means you can identify AA tradition violators. You can point a finger and quote the tradition verbatim. Conform or be cast out. That's a Rush lyric. Uh, Toronto Band, that suggests that maybe this problem wasn't just inside AA meetings. Uh, <laughs> but it was where uh, yeah, Neil Pert and Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson lived too. At least for me, I uh, started to sense that there were meta rules in Toronto. Rules about the rules. Uh, there was this unspoken in-crowd and privileges that came with being part of it and you had to talk a certain language to be included. For me, nine years sober, 25 years old, 1985, that's how it looked anyway. I'd celebrate 10 years as a gift from my group. I was given Pass It On, the story of Bill Wilson and how the AA message reached the world. I would never ask for it. I wouldn't have bought it myself, but I saw it as a thoughtful gesture. I remember Living Sober was brand new. People liked it, so I'd give this new book a try too. I didn't read it right away, but I had gained something in the 10th year of sobriety that I never had when I was new, an attention span. I could read. Uh, maybe uh, the Calgary experience and all of Western Canada, those meetings, maybe they taught this dyslexic autodidact how to focus and learn or settle down enough to read at least a couple of pages at a time. Uh, in Toronto, like Calgary and Montreal before, I sort of found the sort of young people's scene. We ran conferences with themes like Do It Sober A and Stark Raving Sober. They were irreverent but playful. Uh, even for young people, addiction is as serious as a house fire, but we're not a glum lot. We organized dances, live concerts, went camping, we played in each other's bands. Some of us were artists with day jobs. Others were motorcyclists, students, climbing the corporate ladder, whatever. I, I tried all of those scenes, more or less. We carpooled to other cities. Uh, we went looking for uh, conferences in the back of AA Grapevine and went on road trips. I was in a band. It was a sober band. And that was more important to me than reading about AA history. We covered uh, Prince and Talking Heads, uh, the Ramones, Jefferson Airplane, Aretha Franklin. We had a, a good songwriter in the band, Kathy S. Uh, she wrote the song Rebellion Dogs, which is what I named my publishing company after. We did a parody of Wild Thing called Mild Thing that was had this very sort of sexual punk rock finale. It was a crowd pleaser. But uh, the rainy day did come, and uh, I did read the book, Pass It On. 
the old stories were, they were interesting. They were at least as interesting as hearing stories about freebasing cocaine in executive washrooms or punk rock bars uh, in AA meetings. Pass It On captivated me. It gave birth to my interest in the big book, not as a way to get sober, but as a historical place marker. And it was a good thing, too, that I developed this interest because my future was about to have more big book in it. I was uh, reaching the age of 30. I was feeling kind of oldish. I was sort of planning my life in mainstream AA. Book-based AA became stiflingly boring. After the first lap around, after going to the meeting time after time when we would read the 164 pages, uh, I said, what, we're going to start all over and read it again? Isn't there something else we can read? They just looked at me weird. Workshops by Joe and Charlie, or Joe and Charlie-like workshops, they were becoming the rage. Instead of crashing conferences in different cities, Cocaine Anonymous was big on the big book. Muckers, primary purpose, back to basics. This replaced garage bands and coffee shop AA. It was kind of a make AA great again theme. It used that uh, mythical dream long ago in a galaxy far, far away. AA was a better time where everyone got sober and all the groups got along. As the fairy tale went, that was all before big bad treatment centers poisoned and diluted AA with contemporary language and talk about the role of uh, childhood trauma and the need to empower alcoholics and addicts. I, I can see now how this could have been perceived as an existential threat to AA traditionalists. And in a way, uh, all of these changes outside of AA gave birth to AA fundamentalism. I didn't grasp it at the time, but I had a front row seat in real time. It wasn't one cause, I don't think. But it's a fact that the primacy of the big book as sort of a centerpiece of meetings was starting to happen. There were big book teachers and big book weekends. And it came with a, a more godly, more theistic AA narrative. I saw that stuff as kind of comical. I, you see, I was 16 in 1970s Montreal, and I would hear how it works read and see the language as silly. I, I didn't take it seriously. I didn't know who did. I would be asked to read how it works sometimes. I performed it. I came from an acting as if, as a survival tool kind of world in drugs and surviving high school. Uh, I played Orlando in a high school as you like it. So what's the difference between Bill S., William Shakespeare, or Bill W., Word Smithery? Live a little, comfort a little, cheer thyself a little. If the uncouth forest yield anything savage, I will either be food for it or bring the food to thee. Thy conceit is nearer death than thy powers. For my sake be comfortable, hold death a while at the arm's end. I will here be with thee presently, and if I bring thee not something to eat, I will give thee 
leave to die. But if thou diest before I come back, thou art a mocker of my labor. Well said, thou lookest cheery, and I'll be with thee quickly. Yet thou liest in bleak air. Come, I will hear thee to some shelter, and thou shalt not die for lack of dinner, if there live anything in this desert. So there's a Bill S. drama, circa 1959. And then uh, 330 years later, uh, Bill Wilson tried his hand with this sort of uh, dramatic poetry. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all of the earnestness at our command, we beg of you, be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. The result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember, we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, without help. It is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is Odin. May you find him now. Half measures availed nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asketh his protection and care with complete, you know, just didn't seem any different than reading lines for a Shakespearean play. Reading How It Works. I followed what others did. I learned about dramatic pauses and enunciation uh, from fellow amateur uh, performers. There were costume things. Some people would tighten their uh, tie in the middle. Uh, for dramatic effect. I didn't wear a tie, so I would maybe roll up my sleeves or take a timely sip of coffee for dramatic pause. <laughs> you know, there was no Academy Awards being given out, but this was sobriety now. What else was I going to do for fun? I, I didn't think about the meaning of the words because they weren't my words, like singing a song about riding with a truck driver in the rain to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I was playing along. Reading AA was like getting into character. The words didn't matter because they didn't represent me. They represented the character I was portraying when I read the lines. I, I didn't think anyone else took them seriously either. Certainly, I didn't think anyone took them literally. There were religious people in AA, of course. God could and would if he were sought. Like, who would say that with a straight face? It could only be the babbling of the clinically insane, or poetic license of literature. Like, you know, I'm woman, hear me roar, right? Rule 62. I would come to learn from coffee before or after meetings. It's from a story in Tradition 4 in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. The rule is a lesson for AA. Don't take yourself too damn seriously. Sober kids aren't the cool kids. AA isn't a hot spot. Not your group, not mine. So I guess I'm a case study in inaccessibility or unrelatability. Uh, I was when I was a teenager coming in. Maybe I still am as a non-believer. So that was like 45 years ago. And since then, like as you like it, <laughs> my sobriety has been somewhat of a, we could call it a romantic comedy. I haven't died from any tragic flaws, just wrestled with some character defects, as we say. Now, 
we can ask. I've had to do ironic distancing and um, playing along to get along uh, to survive in AA. You know, uh, has that corrupted my recovery path? There certainly, if you look at my sobriety, there's a dark and troubled side to my tale. I've had mental health issues, process addiction issues. It wasn't all lollipops and unicorns. Could this have been averted? The readings of AA were more inclusive. Uh, maybe, of course. I don't know. AA offered me a new life, uh, a new life to do some new suffering. <laughs> The spiral in long-term sobriety, I survived that too, but it left a mark, a crack where the light shines in if you want to keep a brave face about it. Could I have avoided suffering and inflicting suffering on others if, you know, I've, if I resonated more with the uh, literature? I don't know. Those are what-ifs. I'd certainly like to give it a try for the next generation of alcoholics. More consequentially, you know, I might have uh, had troubles, but what about those who came and left? Those who uh, couldn't uh, sort of accept the AA message as it was, those who felt microaggressions or felt humiliated or insulted in some way. How many would be in AA today if we could have lived up to our creed a little better of always being inclusive, never exclusive? So it's a time to reflect and a time to be heard. Hopefully we will be a better informed and more empathic society uh, we'll honor our differences. Uh, everyone's going to have a different opinion. How are two million people going to agree on every change? The adventure continues, I guess. I'm game. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Let's listen to each other. Let's listen to understand. And not just wait for our turn to talk. Let's engage others. And let's have our say, have our vote, and be counted. From the Rebellion Dogs website, there is a link for fellow AA members to have a look at what GSO has been researching and what they feel some of the issues are. They don't have a directive, they're just they're talking points. I think the idea is they want to share this with the widest possible net of AA members, so I'm telling you about this. Visit Rebellion Dogs Publishing, Rebellious Radio, look for episode 56 and you'll find links to that and also to uh, recaps, the Recovery Capital Assessment Plan and Score. Uh, there'll be a link to uh, a free thinker in Alcoholics Anonymous by uh, John Loritzen as well. And I mentioned we are going to go out with music and yes we are. <laughs> now you're some real talent, actually, now that you've put up with my uh, <laughs> soliloquies. Uh, this is a song by As Waters. The song is called Hollywood Ending. I just, this is one of those songs that sort of sticks to my ribs. I really like it. And uh, I will have a link 
if you want to follow this artist on the website as well. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. You know, Joe, your friends might wonder about you reciting soliloquies. I want you to know that your friend, Algo, Rhythm, well, I wonder about you too. But it's nice working with you. See you next time, humanoid. Like a 70s movie, the classic character study. At the end of the rainbow, everything got so muddy. You were cool as a starlet. I was brave like a lion. All the carpets were scarlet, and I didn't mind dying. But as we rode into the sunset, the traffic slowed us down to a crawl. And there's no use pretending, there'll be a Hollywood ending at all. The real sun's fooling. Implacable karma Who the hell are we fooling? Let's dispense with the drama I'm holding on to the bumper It all starts to unravel From this point on the highway There can be nothing but gravel But there's no point in letting go So I might Pretending There'll be a Hollywood ending I know you got lonely Yeah, well I did too I guess we both did What we thought that we had We thought that we had We thought that we had to do Be bygones Take a bow for the curtain I guess this is over But it still feels uncertain Of all the outcomes I imagined I couldn't see it end in a draw